Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, as we get started here, I think we should take stock of where things are currently at. I am recording this introduction on Monday morning, August 30th, and as I am doing so, massive fires are drawing closer and closer to South Lake Tahoe. So while we have been talking about this crisis in affordable housing, well, we are also dealing with a crisis of megafires. And our guest today, Scott Ehlert, is here to make clear how these two things are related and what solutions we have to mitigate both. Honestly, my conversation with Scott touches on such massive topics that it feels difficult to neatly summarize. But these massive topics are crucial ones for all of us to better understand. And as Scott makes crystal clear, we need to not merely understand these things. We need to take action right now, not two or three or four years from now. And Scott talks about some of the things that we can do right now to expedite the process of putting concrete solutions in place ASAP. Bottom line, I think this third conversation in our series is a really important addition to the conversations we've had with Dr. Jenny Stuber and with Troy Russ. So please listen to those conversations if you haven't done so already. Basically, what Scott underscores for us today is that we are in an emergency in our small little mountain towns and across the entire globe. And we are going to need to adjust course quickly in order to save both. And one last thing here, we've included links to several articles and one video that Scott and I have shared back and forth with each other, and I would strongly encourage you to check out all of those. So you'll find those in our related links section, which you'll find right under the topics and time section in the show notes to this episode on your phone or on our Blister website. And with that, let's get to our conversation. Well, Scott, how are you today and where are you today? Yeah, Jonathan. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. It's uh, it's an honor to be here. My day is pretty good so far. Uh, the skies are starting to clear up a little bit here in Truckee. I've been based in, uh, in Truckee, California, on the north end of Lake Tahoe. Um, we've been surrounded by some pretty intense wildfires, so... Uh, and the winds have shifted in our favor, as we were talking about, and, and we're starting to get a little bit of uh, a little break in the in the thick smoke. So uh, that's a good day. <laughs> it's a good day for us. Yeah, I think one of the things that's going to be a theme of our conversation here, maybe the right word is urgency, right? With some of the topics that we're going to be talking about today, and you know, you live in an iconic mountain town, right? The Truckee Tahoe area. And it's been one of the interesting things in the conversations that you and I have had recently. Anybody who thinks like, you know, cool, like we got time here. Let's, let's really take our time thinking through this. That's not quite your take on this. And for reasons that I think are understandable, if anybody has been paying attention to one, the air quality index 
in Tahoe recently and the wildfire situation around the area, there are good reasons why maybe you don't have a very casual relationship to some of the topics we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, very much so. I think that's very spot on uh, description. Yeah. So to get into this, the first thing that I'd love to have you do is just talk a bit about your current job and your current company and the mission of the company. And then we'll kind of go backward from there. So yeah, so without making it too much of a press release, um, (laughs) uh, my company that I work with now is called Fabric Workshop, and we are a sustainable uh, building material company. Um, And in particular, we make what's called uh, mass timber building products. Mass timber is a type of construction technology that um, originated in Europe about two and a half, three decades ago. And it's essentially... um, industrial grade engineered wood as a primary structural building material. Um, and so it's, it was designed to really replace concrete and steel uh, in larger uh, format construction uh, typologies uh, and kind of offsetting that in a more, with a more sustainable building material. The process is where you, you lay up uh, a dimensional lumber in a giant press and glue it together into, you know, giant floor panels and wall panels that can be, you know, 20 feet, wide and 60 feet long. Uh, and so there's, uh, you know, a huge level of prefabrication that goes into that. And uh, it provides a lot of uh, on-site construction benefits. So those buildings go up really fast with a, with a small crew uh, in, you know, a, a, you know, about half the time as a, as a regular building. That material is also uh, lighter and stronger than either steel or concrete. Um, and so you need less concrete in the foundation and uh, less uh, overall material in the building for, uh, you know, seismic and uh, those kind of uh, needs as well. Uh, and, and then you get all of the, the benefits of the carbon capture and the wood, uh, and the carbon, uh, lower carbon in the production of the material versus concrete or steel. The uh, concrete and steel industry produce about 13% combined of, of total global uh, greenhouse gas emissions, uh, of, all, of all greenhouse gas emissions worldwide. So concrete and steel industry is, is really you know, a heavy, high-polluting industry. Um, and so there's much less carbon in the, in the manufacturing and production of this. Um, and then you, you get the benefits of capturing carbon in the wood for the lifetime of the building. Uh, and, uh, these are also, you know, because of the precision, you know, offsite, uh, manufacturing of this, you get incredibly tight tolerances in the, in the panels when the building's put together. So you get a lot less air leakage, uh, and air, you know, heat loss out of those buildings. So the life cycle of that building, is much more efficient as well. Uh, so a lot of strong benefits to the material. Uh, what we're focused on in California, um, our, and our mission is to uh, stop California's megafire situation. And, and I use the term megafires deliberately to separate those from wildfires. Wildfires are natural, normal, and good, healthy for our forests. Megafires are not. They're neither natural, nor healthy, nor good for our forests. Um, and so one of the, the biggest contributors to these megafires is not only climate-induced drought and heat waves, um, but also an excess of fuel loads in our forest. And when we say fuel loads, that just means lots of trees uh, that sh- shouldn't necessarily be there. Um, and right now in California, there's no market for these trees. We import about 90% of our wood. Uh, there's very few uh, milling uh, capabilities and capacity left in our state due to the timber wars in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and so our forests are totally choking and overgrown with all of this fiber. 
Uh, and so our company's mission is to figure out uh, what to do with it, right? And to, to put a market value on it to help expedite its removal from the forests before it explodes and, and burns, right? Um, and so it's a, it's a big, complicated challenge, but something that um, our team is totally up for it and it motivates us every day, you know, especially when you look out your window and, and you see, you know, these massive fires consuming hundreds of thousands of acres, you know, that's a, that's a pretty good motivator. Our kind of point into some of these topics, right? This is part of a series on sort of affordable housing and sustainable development in mountain towns, this kind of thing. And so, you know, I knew that I wanted to talk to a developer, a, a builder, and I know you're going to be providing a, an important perspective into the conversations that we've kind of already had along these lines. So we're going to get there, but I would love to also have you talk a bit. I, I'm just always interested in this. Like, how does a guy like you end up in the job you currently have doing the work that you're currently doing? And can you talk just for a little bit about your own history in developing and manufacturing, I think that'll be a, an interesting context for people to understand, like how you got here. Yeah. So, um, yeah, great, great question, and happy to kind of fill that in. So, I, I grew up in Spokane, Washington, and Eastern Washington. Uh, very much a, a very active outdoor family and lifestyle. Uh, grew up Nordic skiing, alpine skiing, uh, mountain biking in the earliest days of mountain biking. You know, my my family in Montana across, you know, across state lines uh, worked for the fish and my uncle worked for the fish and wildlife department there. Um, and so we were always doing really amazing backcountry trips, uh, camping trips there and, uh, you know, exploring the Alpine lakes in Northwestern Montana. Uh, and so that's very much, you know, uh, connection to nature is very much in, in my blood, but I'm also a city kid. I also love the vibrancy and dynamism of, of cities and um, have lived in San Francisco and downtown Seattle and Chicago and, you know, Rome for a while, you know, spend a lot of time through work in, in London and New York. Uh, so I really love the confluence of, and, and coming together of people and that, 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 you know, um, sometimes tension points of all those people together, but the, the creativity that comes out of that. Um, and so I, I really kind of like both of those worlds uh, and have kind of a foot in, in each one of those uh, geographic areas. Over the course of my time working in cities, I, I, um, I worked as a uh, design strategist for some big agencies and um, worked for a lot of companies uh, in the housing and construction space, big, big, you know, national and, and international companies. And, um, you know, doing lots of research programs for these companies um, really kind of came to see that a housing affordability was uh, a, a looming uh, threat to our country and to the, the, to the social fabric of our country, uh, and that the companies that were in the best position to do something about it weren't really that interested in solving it. It's not their business model. It's not their scope of work. Um, uh, and for them, the system is working, right? They are making their money. They're, you know, the, the system that they helped create is working as it was designed to. Uh, and so there's no real financial incentive to, to make any systemic changes. And, um, you know, got to the point where not only was I, you know, seeing the writing on the wall that, and this was, you know, about 
2013, 2014, uh, 2015 timeframe, uh, that there was, this was going to become a, a, a massive national issue uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, I overlaid my own life experience in here, right? Like my career was going up. I was getting pay raises and promotions. And yet my quality of life in California was going down. And I, uh, you know, was, uh, <laughs> we went from, you know, we, my now wife uh, and I, we were evicted from a uh, three bedroom house that we were renting so that they could sell it. Uh, and from the time that we moved into that house to two years later, what we could afford went from a nice three bedroom house with bay views to a one bedroom in law, you know? Um, and so it, it's very personal, right? Uh, and you know, the implications of that, right? Like all of my friend groups getting squeezed out of the Bay area, multiple friend groups over, you know, decades of living in the Bay and, and in California, um, you know, people getting spread to the four corners of the country because of the cost of housing. Um, again, it's very, this is a very intimate and personal experience. And I just woke up one day and just said something, something's got to change here. And, um, you know, as we talked about, if not me, who, you know, and that was the, that was the big motivator. Uh, I originally approached this as a development project, um, but saw the, and quickly ran into the material side, right, and the and the construction cost uh, challenges of building in California, and how the cost of labor and the cost of materials was just going through the roof, and the traditional building industry really didn't have an answer for that. Um, and so, looking at materials connected me to the forestry people and the forestry people connected me to the wildfire situation. And that was kind of the aha moment, right? The light bulb moment of like, Oh man, like we're dealing with two absolutely massive challenges and they're, they're uh, intimately connected with each other um, and could actually be a solution. Each one of these crises could help solve for the other. Um, and so that kind of got us on this path. And I've then, you know, put three, about three years into this and um, have brought together uh, a lot of people that are, a lot smarter and a lot more experienced than I am uh, to help put together our, our business and our product line, our product strategy and um, manufacturing strategy. And um, we're, uh, we're in a good place right now. We're, we're off to the races and um, are, are moving into a, a physical prototyping phase at this point. It's moving from concept to design to actual prototyping now and, and developer interests, which is really exciting. Okay. Excellent and helpful background, again, to just help people understand sort of where you're coming from in your work history and how you're thinking about this stuff and the rest. Again, for our particular series, you have had a chance to listen to the last couple of conversations I had with Dr. Jenny Stuber and with Troy Russ. And so to start, you know, homing this in a bit more to, you know, the the topics that we've been turning over here. Um, you know, one of the places I guess I want to start with is, um, you know, in our last conversation with Troy, Troy said at the top of the episode that, right, Crested Butte was one of the first places to declare like a housing emergency. And I think one of the interesting things in talking with you, and I think you've already in this conversation given people a pretty good sense of this you really want to underscore the word emergency from an affordability standpoint from a from a megafire standpoint like and it's been interesting you know in the conversation we had the other day you very much are like we got to go now we got to go now and i think that one of the things that's interesting here is you know troy was really kind of emphasizing we need to do like deliberate planning 
we need to have a plan. We need to be considered in what our moves are here. I don't think you disagree with that, but there's a different emphasis on like the urgency and like we need to go now. And I'd love to hear you talk a bit about maybe your experience in working with different communities and maybe where like we need to plan and deliberate can actually end up becoming an excuse. Talk, talk a bit about what you've actually seen in your own experience. Yeah. You know, listening to both those podcasts, there was a lot of uh, great information in both of them and, and, and some valuable perspectives uh, and clearly people that are, you know, both very smart and, and care about the communities that they're engaged in. What can be challenging is, you know, when you hear and, and, you know, um, I originally started looking at this project from a trying to create a business for Truckee, and then that kind of expanded to Tahoe. And then I was looking at it from like a California mountain town perspective, right? And then realized that, no, these things are all so intimately connected and that, you know, um, solving for one community, you know, really should be solving for the state of California. We have a very strong California-focused lens for a lot of reasons like regulatory and code compliance on the building side, as well as just understanding the market uh, and the dynamics that we're serving rather than trying to go too big too soon. Um, and so, you know, we've we've been heavily engaged in the planning process here in Truckee, um, in South Lake Tahoe, and Tahoe City, in Mammoth, right, and attending all of those, you know, town council and planning session meetings. And um, uh, what's been great, you know, one of the good little, I guess, subtle benefits of of COVID is that so many of these planning sessions have now gone virtual. And so you can attend them remotely. Uh, and, you know, so we've been able to attend not only these mountain town community planning sessions, but also San Francisco and Sacramento and, you know, Santa Rosa, San Jose, Los Angeles, um, Palo Alto, right. All of these different, uh, different communities have to put their planning session meetings online. And you just start to hear the same thing over and over again. doesn't matter what town you're in, mountain town, big urban city. Um, the, there's these phrases that pop up over and over again, and they are now become like they're like trit language triggers, right? Uh, that sound benign, but really uh, can have big implications for a community. So things like neighborhood character, number one, quality of life is another one, uh, community dialogue or community outreach. These things, you know, community preservation, inclusionary zoning, that's another one, big red flag, uh, design review historical character, historical overlay, all of these things that sound good, right? They, they have this, you know, uh, benevolent kind of uh, ring to them. But when you look at them in practice, they really, all they are is they're just these constructs that we've created to prevent new people from, and I should, I, let me, I don't even want to say that. It's not new people. It's to prevent more people from having access to a, 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 a housing in these communities. Because a lot of the people that are desperate for housing in these mountain town communities and in these urban areas already live there, right? This is not about bringing new people to the community. This is about uh, providing housing for the people that are already there. Um, you know, families that are overcrowded, right? Houses that houses that are overcrowded with people or uh, delayed family starts because they don't have proper housing, right? So, you know, I want to emphasize that that this is not about growing these communities and bringing, you know, t you know, new hordes of people to live permanently in them. It's about addressing the needs of the people that are already here. And when you hear things like, you know, that we need to 
you know, have a community dialogue about and understand the neighborhood character, or, you know, we need to have more design review meetings over this proposed building because, you know, we want to make sure it fits in with the, the, the character of, of this neighborhood. Those are all things that just delay projects that just give more opportunity for the entrenched interest to say no, to put up more roadblocks. And those are, expensive for the people that are trying to build things. So if you're trying to build affordable housing or middle income housing, every time you have to go back to a planning session, every time that your timeline gets pushed out a few more months, a few more weeks, one more design review thing, let's do see some more drawings, you know, like let's change the color of that brick from a dark red to a medium dark red, you know, Um, that's just more cost that just incrementally pushes up the cost of these projects and makes them at the end of the day, makes a lot of them not pencil. Um, and so, you know, when I hear those things, you know, I, I struggle to see how they're any real value to the community and that they're ultimately just roadblocks for uh, creating the housing that these communities so desperately need. You know, your conversation with Troy, you know, I, I like I, I get where he's coming from and wanting to engage the community. Um, but overwhelming the, the community that is engaged in those meetings are existing homeowners, they're older, whiter, wealthier, and they got their piece of the pie. And they're going to use things like neighborhood character and quality of life to keep other people from getting a little slice of that pie. Uh, And that's where I have, you know, a a real challenge with that. Um, And if it was, you know, if it was just one, one meeting or one town that you heard that in, you know, you might be able to contextualize that. But when you hear the same phrases over and over and over again, applied to any project, a market rate project, luxury condos, affordable condos, you know, middle income condos, a middle income townhome project, people will say the exact same thing. And really at the end of the day, they just don't want anybody else to have what they've got. And that's where I kind of struggle. So that's interesting because I again, just talking for myself, like I think what Troy was laying out made a ton of sense. And I think where I was coming from is like, you know, this is a community, this isn't a dictatorship, right? So no one really should just be able to say, I'm making the call here. This is how we're going to develop, et cetera. So the way that I was interpreting what Troy was saying is like, when he was pushing, say, for this like community compass, if we can get a current community, wherever it might be located, to say, okay, this is what we are saying are the priorities and values of a community. If that can get nailed down, that should then accelerate processes going forward. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I just use the word should, right? Yeah. And so like I'm operating in this kind of ideal world you're operating in the world where when you say like, I'm part of all of these, like I'm listening to these different conversations and communities and I'm hearing the same terms all the time. And I think that in my actual experience, these are kind of stall tactics. Yeah. Stall at best. Stall at best. And I think that's really something that everybody listening to this conversation ought to be aware of. You know, I said in my first conversation with Jenny, I talked a bit about just hypocrisy, right? And if we want to sit here and think of ourselves as being, you know, nice progressive people who, sure, we want more affordable housing around here, but then we just turn around and 
have different mechanisms to throw up roadblocks to that, then we just need to get clear and maybe just start self-acknowledging like, actually, no, I don't want anybody else here. I'm happy I snuck in the door and let's bar the door now. Right. And I think these are, this might sound basic or maybe not concrete enough, but this is at least a start point for all of us to be thinking about what should these communities look like? What do I want the community to look like? And if I'm actually like, yo, I'm just team, let's bar the door behind me, get clear about that and stop with the pro- progressive language. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, and, you know, to, to back up to the very beginning of what you were saying is, you know, having this community dialogue ensures that we don't live in a authoritarian state, right? Um, the irony of that is that we do live in an authoritarian state when it comes to planning right now and building in our communities. Our um, planning departments have put in such restrictive zoning codes that they basically, not basically, they do dictate that you can only build one type of building uh, in our communities, and that's the single family home. Our building process and the zoning codes around them are, are, are so restrictive that property rights don't really exist in most communities in this country. I can't build a fourplex on it, anywhere in Truckee. I don't think there's I don't think there's a single fourplex lot or a, a, a lot that would allow a fourplex to be built on it for sale in Truckee right now. Pretty pretty positive of that, and I'm sure that that's uh, you know looking in Crested Butte. I think I saw kind of the same thing, right? Um, so we do live in a you know coming in and change you know allowing more building types is not authoritarian. We want to relax zoning codes. We want to remove those restrictions and to have a more free market approach to provide a much broader range of housing typologies. Um, and so, you know, right now this process has been set up to only give a voice to a very limited number of people with very limited and, and very self-serving interests. And so, we, you know, our, our position and I shouldn't say R because I'm not really speaking for my company as a whole right now, but my myself and other people that want to see more uh, building in, in, in our you know cities and our towns, you know, we want to break down those barriers and break down those walls and have a more transparent and open process. We would love to see more by right development codes. And by that, I mean, um, you know, this lot is zoned for, eight units of housing, you can build an eightplex on that lot, you pay your fee, two weeks later, you get your building permit. It's done. There's, it's transparent. It's open. Everybody knows the name, the rules of the game. Instead, what we do now is if you want to build any type of multifamily housing, which let's multifamily is affordable housing. It's, for, it's the housing typology that throughout human history has been used to provide more housing for more people. If you want to build multifamily housing in pretty much any community in America, you have to go through an arduous entitlement process, design review process, community outreach, you know, public appeals, begging people to approve your process. You know, anybody can throw up a red flag and, and drag out your, your construction timelines for six months, 12 months, two years, four years, you know? And so that's just, you know, like that, all of that, all that does is just continually, um, you know, push the price of housing up further and further out of reach of people and push the, the value of the land further and further to where your, your solutions become more and more complex uh, and not as straightforward. I am not a builder. 
I think everybody understands that. Help me understand how to like thread this needle. I think that in a lot of these communities, what many of us who live in these communities don't want are just developers coming in, trying to make a buck however they can in terms of like throwing something up that perhaps isn't really in the best interests of the community or whatever. It is a way to make a buck, right? If, if you sort of accept that, and if there are people listening to this who live in mountain communities, if they're assuming that some of them are nodding along with me on that, how do you thread the needle between going to more of a free market approach where we make it easier for somebody to come in and develop something, anything, versus coming in to specifically help solve the affordable housing issue, right? How, how do you thread that needle? Well, you know, I think having a more kind of transparent process and, and more kind of buy right and, and, and a more kind of liberalized zoning policy, if I may hit pause on that real quick and kind of come back to the emergency piece, right? If this is truly an emergency, let's let's change the zoning. Let's change the zoning to allow more development to happen in a faster uh, path to completion in more places of our communities. That doesn't mean sprawling out on the edges of our communities and paving over more of our wetlands and our you know farmlands and open space. Uh, it just means opening up more of our existing footprint that we've already built on to a broader range of housing typologies. So that's your number one, zoning. Yes, zoning. That's the biggest barrier right now is zoning, right? We basically, I mean, there's, there's you know, cities in California, San Jose is, you know, 90 something percent single family home zoning only, right? And then we constrict the commercial and multifamily to these arterial, you know, heavily trafficked, you know, polluted arterials uh, and a few strips, right? And that just makes those multifamily and mixed use lots incredibly expensive, which then makes the affordable housing not very affordable, right? Because it's so limited. And so by relaxing that zoning and allowing more multifamily and more parts of our communities, I mean, people that live in multifamily housing should be able to live in a neighborhood, right? You know, this idea that single family neighborhoods are for good people and multifamily is for the transient others is a is a horrible belief and you know that should be, you know, torn down as quickly as possible in this country. Um, and so, you know, that zoning is the biggest barrier. Um, relaxing zoning doesn't mean that you have to any, you know, the developers to come and just bulldoze your community. You can still target areas that you want to preserve, uh, buildings that you want to preserve. You can you can create um, very transparent design guidelines that um, assure, ensure a certain aesthetic and material usage in your community. But as long as it's like really transparent, then developers will respond to that. It's when you create these opaque processes that rely on feelings and opinions um, of, you know, every stakeholder in the community with some stakeholders having more sway than others that you increasingly drive up the cost of, of construction and push developers out. You know, I think another thing to address here too is, you know, developers are probably some of the least liked people in this country, right? Like they're probably neck and neck with lawyers, right? You say developer and like most people are like, Oh, evil. And yet 
I'm in a house. This house was developed by somebody. You're in a building. It was developed by somebody. Everything that we see around us, our society was developed by somebody. And somebody took that risk. They took the time out of their life. They had the skills to do it. Um, and they, you know, they, they made, you know, they put that effort into to build our society. And so there's a lot of demonization that, that shouldn't happen. That said, I think that if, if you put out an RFP to, to develop uh, Yosemite Valley, there would be a developers falling all over themselves to pave that and put in, you know, a strip mall and a yeah. Starbucks and, you know, big luxury homes. Right. So, th- you know, that, that needs to be balanced a bit. But um, again, if you just, if you create a more transparent and open process, you know, if you want to work with your community and say, we're Crested Butte or we're Truckee, what are the things that make Truckee, Truckee? Let's codify that and put that in a document. And everybody kind of then knows that's what we want our buildings to kind of look like. And then there you go. You can preserve your character. You can preserve your heritage, but you at least open up that process to allow more people to participate in the development at a, at a much more reasonable cost and much more reasonable timelines. And if I may just Jonathan, add just one more thing here, you know, the timeline thing is really important, right? Like, you know, all of these things that just continually add to the clock, right? They push these, the, the construction schedule back months, if not years, in a lot of cases, years, little years to build a building. Well, A, I can go to Martis Camp here in Truckee, which is, you know, one of the super expensive, like the, you know, one of the most expensive neighborhoods and areas of Truckee, you know, gated community, you know, $10 million homes. There's no public outreach to build a home, you know, $10 million home in that community. There's no community meetings. We have no input on that. It's only when we build affordable housing for middle income and lower income people that we feel like the community should have a say in that. That just drags this out to unnecessary times. And we're talking, you know, if you're trying to build a building and we're, if we're saying there's a housing emergency, emergency, that word is, should not be taken lightly. And Truckee has a housing emergency. People are being pushed out left and right out of this town. Eviction notices up all over the city. People are, you know, you know, moving trucks, boxing up their, their lives and getting, getting forced out of this town. That's an emergency. And yet if it takes you two years to get through your first round of, of, you know, entitlement planning. And that means you haven't even started construction or site work or leveling the site. You know, we're talking what five years to build a building. Like how does that address an emergency in a community? It doesn't, it doesn't. Totally agree. Yeah. So again, my primary goal here is to keep trying to push toward solutions and best practices. Right. And so, you know, in, like the rest of our time in this conversation, that's what I hope to continue to try to get to, right? As opposed to just doing a bunch of hand-wringing about like, oh, it's really terrible out there. It's like, cool, we know that. What do we do? You know, and and if we can put some better practices and best practices in front of people, you know, the hope here is that like we we put all of these communities and, you know, participants uh, in a better position to figure out how to move toward a goal, hopefully a common goal of keeping these places special, preserving some of the uniqueness, right? Troy and I talked about, it doesn't seem great if we go to the McDonaldization of all of these mountain towns, but like, let's improve and actually address the affordability of these communities, right? So you've already talked about 
your number one is as from the point of view of a developer, your number one thing is let's revise zoning regulations. Where do we go from there? Next concrete step. You know, the, the, I would say the next two, two legs of that stool would be the building codes and the public fees that are levied on new construction. Back, sorry, back to the, the zoning. There's other pieces of the zoning besides you know, the number of units that can be built on a lot that are, are used to prevent housing or, or really kind of steer the type of housing. You know, things like um, floor area ratios, as, as Troy mentioned in the last podcast, you know, allowing how big of a structure you can have on a site. Um, setbacks, right? Uh, that's like how far your building has to be set back from the street or set back from the sides of the lot uh, between buildings. Uh, all of those things are are utilized to create um, more expensive buildings, right? Like if you have to have big, if you have big setbacks and a lower and a, and a restricted floor area ratio, the developer is going to build the most expensive, you know, profitable thing that he can, which ends up being a luxury vacation home. In if we're talking mountain communities, that's the other parts of zoning that are, are that need to be reformed. Uh, parking minimums is another another thing, right? Uh, there's towns in California, cities in California that require four covered parking spots for every every uh, uh, unit of housing. That basically is a death sentence for any type of multifamily housing. That's that's on purpose, right? They put that in there by design to basically say we only want wealthy people and big homes to live in our community. Uh, there's also, you know, this is a whole other thread, but that's, you know, huge climate implications and quality of life implications. If we're just stuffing more and more cars in our community, uh, especially these mountain towns that are pinched in valleys, um, you know, the quality of life goes down dramatically. Uh, so yeah, so, uh, that's another elements of zoning that really kind of drive up the cost and limit the type of, of, of construction that you can do on a site and also have big upstream and downstream implications for communities back to the big building codes and fees. Um, building codes, I'll keep that pretty brief, you know, especially when it comes to multifamily housing, we hate to see, for, for whatever reason, we've decided that a building is is an affront to our delicate sensibilities in this country. If people have to see a building, especially in mountain communities, that, you know, we failed them somehow, right? And so we use things like breaking up language, like breaking up the massing or uh, a stepped back uh, upper floors, um, articulated facades and articulated roof lines. These are all kind of construction terms that um, drive up the cost of housing. And you know, an articulated facade, for example, is when you see a, 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 an apartment building that's got all the different pop-outs, and it's not a it's not a simple box. It's just got it's got you know uh, window pop-outs and deck pop-outs and like the living rooms popped out, and all of those jogs in the footprint of the building dramatically increase the cost of the building. Uh, they make the interior units worse uh, and less usable. They also really dramatically increase the performance and the life uh, time uh, of that building because it's uh, more energy waste and more opportunities for water to penetrate the structure and degrade the structure. So that's the building codes, uh, for example. And then fees, uh, you know, Truckee uh, fees, for example, and this is pretty much universal. Um, you build a 10 unit, apartment building in Truckee, you pay the same fees on each one of those units as you would on building uh, 10 single family homes on different lots. Uh, and so, you know, the fee structure just overwhelmingly favors building one big, large luxury home versus 10 affordable homes for a middle income family. 
Uh, and so that fee structure, you know, again, if this is an emergency, if we all, like we're all saying it is, change your fees. You can do that overnight. Change your fees. Increase the fees on the luxury homes. Decrease the fees on the multifamily. <laughs> you know, like, like it's not, this isn't rocket science. Like these are really simple changes that can be done tomorrow and, and still, you know, have a functioning society. You know, you have said this multiple times now. And so, you know, correct me if I'm wrong or help me understand this. You are pretty adamant that a lot of these regulations and codes and fees are pretty insidious. It really is about protecting and preserving, how do we say this, these communities for the, for the you know, 0.1%. I, I wonder how much this is simple fact versus how controversial of an opinion this is, right? If we talk to a bunch of different communities or developers in different communities, if you would, if everybody who actually knows this stuff and works in this world would be like, yeah, that's a hundred percent what this is. These communities are specifically set up to create these large houses for the wealthiest people. Can you just say a bit more on this? You know, this is something that I, I learned when I was consulting and, and getting on the inside of some of these big companies, uh, you know, the biggest companies in construction and the mortgage lending space, you know, the people that write the checks for all of this stuff, the banks. None of this is an accident. Not everything that we're seeing here is all playing out as it was designed to play out. Um, you know, we've got a, you know, to crack this open, like, you know, single family zoning has really ugly roots in this country as if, and that's a fact, right? Um, you can go back to the first communities that started to implement single family zoning and uh, it's got, you know, one-to-one -one connections to the redlining, the racist redlining policies in the past. And, and for people that don't know, redlining is when banks would look at a, at a, you know, a city and they would say, okay, these neighborhoods have a lot of black people in them. So they are of low value and we're not going to lend any money to anybody that wants to build anything in those neighborhoods. And they put, draw a literal red line around them on the map and say, no investments can be made in those neighborhoods because they're undesirable. Um, that prevented, uh, you know, economic and, and, and social betterment for those communities of color, primarily communities of color. Um, for the longest time in this country, for decades, they were explicit about that. They made no qualms that they that this, you know, this was against certain ethnic groups in our country. Um, you looked at the mar marketing materials. You can anybody can go online and pull these up. Uh, the marketing materials for a lot of these early single-family communities ex explicitly state no Negroes, no Chinese allowed. That was a bonus. That was a a, a, a perk of moving into these communities. When we look at our freeway development, our freeway system, um, also tied to single family homes, right? If you've got these far flung suburban developments, they are then connected to the economic centers uh, in the center of our cities through freeways. Um, that way you don't have to touch shoulders on a public transit with the undesirables. You can just whisk right in on your freeway. Those freeways were deliberately run through minority neighborhoods deliberately run. In Los Angeles, for example, they rerouted freeways into a more expensive and more complicated path to cut through uh, growing black middle-class neighborhoods. 
and they they ran those freeways through those neighborhoods to to um, inflict pain on those communities. Um, and that's not that's not a secret, right? Like this is this is very you know pretty out in the open. And but we've we've covered that up pretty nicely uh, in our history. What happened was with the civil rights movement is that they couldn't be so explicit anymore. They had to get what they wanted without being so overtly racist, and that was the the beginnings of of true single family only zoning. And you can go to Seattle, for example, is a great example. You can overlay the red line maps, the racist red line maps from the the twenties and thirties, with these uh, new single family zoning, and they're essentially one to one, right? So we've used zoning to keep out the undesirables. And you know, put it, putting that up into mountain towns and how that's relevant to this, you know, conversation. You know, we've basically created a, a cast of undesirables in our communities, and that's the service industry workers, the public sector workers, the resort workers, uh, blue collar workers in our communities. You're undesirable. You are not as good, right? And so we're going to use the tools of zoning to ensure that you can't be here. And I've heard leaders of Truckee say that living in Truckee is a privilege and maybe should be reserved for those that are, are more privileged. That's, that's a ver- essentially verbatim line I've heard. I've heard people say that are in a, a position of, of influence in this community that Truckee already has an affordable housing neighborhood. It's called Reno. Gates are closed. Right. So, yeah, these are tools that are used for exclusion and single family zoning and this, these restrictive zoning covenants and HOAs and all this stuff are tools for exclusion. Um, and, and as we talked about in our earlier conversations, scarcity is the goal. You know, you've heard so many people, even in, in your conversation with, um, with Jen, she talks about increasing equity in homeownership and, and how these deed restricted houses don't provide the same level of equity as other houses. And I don't know if that's a good thing, right? I think it's um, a, a little twisted that we've taken one of our, you know, greatest social needs, housing, a roof over your head and turned it into an investment vehicle. You know, the single family home has become the primary retirement vehicle for an entire generation of Americans, the boomer generation, right? This is their nest egg. This is their, their retirement fund. And so they're going to do everything that they can to ensure that nothing hurts that property value, that more supply, you know, more supply will will dampen the uh, price increases of homes, and they don't want that. So when you go to have that community dialogue and that community outreach, you know, they're going to do everything that they can to preserve, again, to preserve their piece of the pie and to ensure that that scarcity persists and that their home continues to increase by, you know, eight, ten, fifteen percent annually, annually. And is there anything that can be done to sort of like reverse that reality now? Or are we now just about, hey, more of us need to perhaps make some, you know, significant decisions based on values where we say, I understand that. And from a, if I only care about, say, my retirement nest egg, well, if that's all I care about, then I should be on this bar the door mentality, right? We want as much scarcity as possible. That's going to be 
personally beneficial for me. Is there anything we can do to like looking back to reverse the, that situation? Or are we, is this just now about, again, getting clear about values and what we actually value and going forward then saying, we want to make a more equitable community. And if I take a bit of a financial hit to, I don't know, my retirement nest egg, so be it. Well, I don't have much faith that the people that are already in the gates are going to uh, voluntarily relinquish uh, their, their, their stake, right? I've just seen too much pushback across demographics, across incomes, even people that don't make a lot of money, but got in the game, you know, in the nineties, they're not going to, they don't want to give it up. Right. And so that's where I feel like the community dialogue piece is not, is, is going to struggle. So I think we do have to make about a top down value judgment. We're seeing that in California with statewide zoning changes that are passing, you know, um, that are overriding local control. And I think that that's just an inevitability, right? I think we do need to reassess moving forward how we approach housing. What is its, what is housing's role in our society? What is built? What do? What is our built world? What it, you know? What does that say about us? I look at very successful models of housing abundance in Vienna, for example. That's a. This is a whole huge conversation, but Vienna has really low cost of living due to their housing. That's deep socialist past and land ordinances. And it's really, I mean, that's a whole other podcast in and of itself. Um, but they, as a society, they basically said that, that housing needs to be good and needs to be abundant for people of all incomes. And so they valued that and they fund it and they build public housing and they build uh, slightly, you know, a, a sub publicly subsidized housing. Um, they have public builders, right? Where the, where the state is actually the builder, um, because they, their goal is, is everybody, you know, to, to have, um, enough housing at a, at a cost that is not cost burdening their population. Um, that's where I think we need to move to, you know, alternative forms of ownership, uh, co-ops, for example, are, are incredibly and increasingly popular in places like Switzerland and Sweden that have really high cost of living. Um, where you're not owning, you don't own the whole building, you own a share in that building. And so you can kind of get into it at a, at a middle income uh, level with a lower down payment uh, and, and still have a high quality place to live. And quality is really important, right? Like that's really, really key. Um, you know, I, I, I don't, I struggle with true affordable housing sometimes because the quality is really shoddy and the design is really bad. I've worked in the design industry for 20 years and I, I see the real benefits to good design, you know, not just like, Ooh, that's pretty, but like, I, I feel good about this, you know? Um, and so I think that we need to invest more in that for more income ranges. Yeah. So, you know, moving forward, how do we retrofit the past? Well, I think this goes back to the the zoning issue, right? You know, if you look at really good infill development, infill being not at the edge of your town, paving over a farmland, but in, 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 in the existing footprint of your town, two single family home lots can easily have a four story, 50 unit building on it. Easily accommodate that without, you know, cover burying the whole lot in concrete. You know, that's, is, that to me is a retrofit. It's how do you take these really absurd 
land costs, you know, that have been driven up so high because that's what we're really paying for here is the land. Um, that's why you can have a, you know, little Cracker Jack building in Crested Butte be a million and a half dollars. You're not paying for the building, you're paying for the dirt underneath it. Yeah. So that's, I, that I see is the, is the retrofit for the past, right? Is, is distributing that land cost over, over more homes. Um, and then also, you know, coming up with alternative forms of ownership to get more people that, that true skin in the game, get them out of the rental market, get them, you know, uh, an equity stake, even if it's not going to be, uh, you know, the, the same degree as, uh, you know, a single family home in a, in a constricted market, but at least it gets them that, that sense of permanence and belonging and uh, stake in the community. Can you point to any specific communities in the U.S., this alternative ownership structure? I'd love to, we'll, we'll post this conversation in like two days. I'd love to have a link to an article or something for, this is a pretty new thing that I'm hearing about. Yeah, I'd yeah. love to post a link to something to sort of let people go check out some examples of this. Yeah. Uh, so in the U.S., you know, co-ops are very rare. Um, there's a big history of of co-ops in New York City, in Manhattan, uh, particularly from the uh, unions. The unions in New York used to fund co-op for all of their union members. So they would have affordable housing. So the textile unions, um, you know, these are now these models are now in New York are about a hundred year old, hundred years old, and they're having lots of challenges. And a lot of co-ops have gone condo, and there's a whole world around that. But, um, you know, there's a, there's a, a ton of examples there. Uh, and then more local here in California at a, at a smaller scale, um, Davis, California, for example, has a very successful co-op that was established, uh, where the, uh, cost to get into a unit, I think is about 15% of what the area down payment is to buy a, a market rate home. Uh, and while the, you know, the market rate, uh, housing market has its you know peaks and valleys, uh, booms and busts. That co-op has held very consistent and has held consistently low. Uh, and I shouldn't say low; I should say substantially lower than the area median home price. Um, and so it's it's a much more kind of stable uh, approach, uh, and it's a it's it kind of rides out the 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 secular nature and the speculative nature of the housing market. Uh, and maintains a, a affordability over uh, the long term. The resident happiness there at that project in Davis, and I can share you a link to that as well. Um, quality of life scoring, happiness scoring off of that is higher than um, apartments in the area as well. So there's just that sense of you know belonging, right? Like I've got this is my place, and and you can get get in at a price that um, you know is much more affordable to a much broader range of people. And I do see that as a as a very valid path forward for mountain communities, and 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 um, you know, especially when you could bring in some public subsidies to offset those costs and ensure that those remain deed restricted and affordable for the long term. You know, this kind of uh, maybe kind of springboards into our conversation around cars. But Truckee, for example, uh, when we do a new development or an affordable housing development, apartment development, the town will pay for a lot of the infrastructure costs, they'll contribute to the infrastructure costs of those projects. But those infrastructure costs translates to um, car-based infrastructure and and roundabouts in particular, uh, traffic roundabouts. And so for one affordable uh, housing project here in town that was built by a developer out of Vail, uh, for example, uh, the town paid $4 million for the roundabout out in front of that apartment building. $4 million to not have a stop sign 
And I just scratched my head at that. I don't understand the rationale behind that when that money could have gone to purchase a piece of land to build, you know, some deed restricted co-op housing for locals. You know, that that to me seems the, the better path forward and the better use of public funds than, you know, parking lots and roundabouts. The like car thing and parking and $4 million roundabouts. Who knew? This is something we should spend a bit more time on, like cars and car culture and parking and housing. Say a bit more on this and and let's make sure people understand like the significance of parking spaces when it comes to building affordable housing. You know, this is something that was, uh, I was not fully aware of when I started this project and, um, you know, the, 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 the really, you know, uh, intense implications for our, our car based approach to, to transit in our societies and how much that impacts the cost of housing, you know, and, and I should add in the front here, you know, I am, you know, red blooded American, uh, grew up in a car obsessed culture and the 80. I mean, we were fast and furious before fast and furious. I mean, we, we, you know, we partied in cars, we drank and drive, you know, in high school, like we, we were all about our cars. We tuned our cars, raced cars. You know, I was a, a car nut. I've worked with car clients, luxury car clients. I've had lots of different tuned BMWs and, uh, you know, Ram trucks, you know, um, and my, my appetite and and affinity for for cars has changed dramatically over the last couple of years over researching this because I've seen, you know, in the data firsthand, the uh, implications that we all just kind of take for granted uh, when it comes to what that does to our society and our communities. Directly related to affordable housing, car storage is expensive, right? Um, it is a space in a structure that is only used for a certain percentage of the day, and then it's empty. Uh, it costs a lot to build, right? Um, it's generally in if it's a covered structure in an apartment building, for example, it's on the ground floor. You need like heavy kind of shear ratings and concrete struck you know walls. Uh, in a urban environment, a covered parking spot can be seventy, eighty thousand uh, dollars. In a place like Truckee, a covered parking spot is thirty to fifty thousand dollars per parking spot. Uh, a two-car household, that's 100000 bucks on the top of your unit right there, right? You add in the fees, you add in the land costs. Uh, we're talking four hundred grand just for parking fees and, and dirt before we've even gotten to the structure. That's not affordable to anybody that works in a restaurant in, in Truckee or Crested Butte, right? Um, so just that, just that pure nuts and bolts cost uh, of the actual physical uh, component of car storage. Then you factor in things like the uh, geometry of car storage, right? It's something that you don't, people just don't even think about. You don't even recognize. And unfortunately, like I've kind of been like pulled out of the matrix, right? And like now that I've kind of like seen the data and I see all the implications of that, like that's all I see everywhere I go now is like, you know, how, how much uh, this affects how we build and what we build in our societies. So geometry on a structure. Let's say you've got a site that's a half an acre. Uh, and you've got to build um, uh, 20 covered parking spots or 20 surface parking spots on a surface parking lot. Well, there's the turn-in angle that's required by the code, by the building code of, of um, you know, how much space you need for those cars to turn in and out of those parking spots. That geometry 
really eats up a lot of your lot, your buildable lot, and dictates the type of structure that you can then build on that lot. When a developer comes to a master plan or an apartment building, the first thing they design is the parking. Master plan communities, it's, it basically is a giant, it's a parking lot with buildings scattered throughout the parking lot. And you know, you're like, well, we need cars, right? Like, uh, but the costs are just so high. And the costs are high for construction costs. They drive up the cost of housing. They drive up the cost of land, right? Look at how much of your town is dedicated to parking lots and roads. There's parts of Phoenix where 60% of the land is car storage or, or, uh, or roads. I look at the Google Maps. I look at Crested Butte. There's surface parking lots all over the place. The new Crested Butte High School, that's a massive surface parking lot they've got next to that. And I bet you their teachers struggle to find affordable housing in the community. And so we have basically made that, again, a value judgment that says that the storage of cars is more important than housing for the residents of our community. And we will, in the zoning, we will force businesses and residents, residential construction to have uh, par- car parking in these, you know, car- parking minimums. So, you know, you open a new grocery store, well, you need 200 parking spots for, you know, that new grocery store. Well, that's, you know, several an acre, acre and a half of land that's not then available for housing. Um, and so, you know, land costs go up and scarcity of land is eaten up by cars. Uh, the maintenance cost of all of this is something that we cannot afford as a society. We basically punt these costs down the road. You know, uh, um, California, for example, has a $130 billion backlog in road repairs, $130 billion in road repairs. And yet our, and our transit budget, single, only a single digit percent goes to road repairs. The rest goes to new road construction. So we're just building tons of new roads, new freeway expansions, more lanes, and yet it doesn't work. I mean, look around. Is there anywhere that you see where we've built a car-centric, you know, car-exclusive community where there's no traffic, where we've where this problem has been solved? I mean, look at what is it, the 70 that goes out of Denver up to the mountains? What does that look like on a Saturday? You know, how many more? Not great. How many more lanes of traffic? Oh, how many more? Like if we build three more lanes of traffic in each direction, will it be solved or will it just be more cars and more lanes of traffic? Right. And then, you know, everybody's driving up to the mountains to go ski. Well, all of that, all of that demand for land, for parking garages and surface parking lots, it's all land that could have been allocated towards housing for small businesses, uh, for open space, right? The open space implications. You know, we go back to you know, um, Troy's conversation about wanting to avoid anywhere America. There's one way to guarantee that your community looks like every other shit community in this country. It's build strip malls with massive parking lots. Like talk about sucking the soul out of your community. You know, that's the fastest way to do it. And then, you know, back to the urgency thing that we talked about at the top of this, right? Climate change is a, is the monster is the beast that's driving you know, that is the true existential threat for, uh, for our mountain communities. Right. Um, I'm a huge skier. I want to keep skiing. I want my kids to keep, keep skiing. And yet climate change is going to change that. I think a lot faster than any of us, it already is changing it. Right. Like we're already, it's, it's happening today and car-based pollution is the number one contributor to greenhouse gases in the United States. That's just, there's just no, that's, that's the facts. 
right? Um, and so the more we continue to build our communities around cars, the quality of life goes down, the costs go up, and our climate gets worse and worse. So I don't see where the win is. I really don't. So all this is to say, then, I take it, this is why we need to develop really robust, truly useful public transportation systems. Would that be the right takeaway with everything from everything you've just said? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. And to make our communities much more complete, complete communities means, you know, not so segregated, like, you know, single family sprawl over here, strip mall over there. Like, and this is how we evolved. That's how we built for millennium as we would sprinkle uses within each other. And it created a much more vibrant and interesting uh, societies, you know? Um, and so it's, it's, it's public transit and shoes and bikes, right? Like that's what we, that's what we really need to solve climate change in this country, you know? And we all love bikes, right? I love bikes. I, you love bikes. Uh, who doesn't love to ride a bike in the mountains? Like, like, this should be our the default mode of transportation, uh, particularly in mountain communities. And, and I do think that mountain communities have an inherent responsibility to be driving this change. That the people that live and work in the mountains have a, 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 a moral obligation to say enough. And that if you want, if you live in Denver or San Francisco or Seattle and you want to come up to these mountain communities, you need to get on a train or get on a bus and that's how you're going to get up here. And you're not going to choke our roads and our and our skies and our waterways with car-based pollution. You're, you know, um, like if you want to get up here, this is about unwinding and relaxing and, you know, get out of your car. I know that that's a pretty extreme position. You know, I know that that's kind of a revolting thought for a lot of people in our society, right? I've talked, I've done, you know, research interviews here in Truckee where we've kind of teed that idea up. And people have looked me dead in the eye and they've said, I will die without my car. And I'm like, bro, you live across the street from three grocery stores. How are you going to die? And you know, like, you're not going to die. You know, you're going to be just fine. You'll still get to the mountain to ski. You'll still get to the trails to mountain bike. You know, um, everybody will be just fine. We just need to, to rip that bandaid off and, and start, you know, reprioritizing uh, our communities and, and elevating our, the climate change to a, again, to a true emergency that we say it is. By the way, you actually shared an article with me that was talking about parking versus housing. And this was an article about some things happening in Portland. We'll, we'll include a link to that article in the show notes to this episode, but do you want to say a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, great um, for referencing that. Um, and I think that's a really, a really great article that helps people understand the implications here and the choices that we make and how we build and what we what what we're prioritizing in the in those buildings. Uh, so in that article, they did a study on an infill lot in Portland. It was a 100 foot by 100 foot lot in central Portland, and. Uh, right with the current zoning with parking minimums, the most profitable thing that a developer could build was a 10 uh, unit townhome project where each townhome, I believe, was about $800,000. And that was with two parking spots per townhome. And that kind of goes back to the, you know, the, the, the footprint of those parking and, and you know, all of the implications of, of the parking. 
If you remove those parking minimums and you do a parking-free structure, the most profitable, again, the most profitable thing that the developer could build, more profitable without the parking, was 29 uh, one-bedroom units that sold for under $300,000 each. I think they were like $290,000 each. And so, you know, that is a really explicit example of like the choices that we make. And, you know, I asked the people that are listening to this and that are in mountain communities that are struggling to find housing and that are, are housing insecure or are cash strapped for housing, what's important to them? And if a building popped up in their community, what would that look like? You know, what would those luxury townhomes sell for in Crested Butte? Um, or would you rather see 30 one bedroom apartments that people that work at the resort, the restaurants, uh, gondola mechanics, you know, like those are good jobs. These are good middle income jobs. And, and, you know, what, what is going to provide that vehicle for that middle income housing more, right? Those luxury townhomes or those car free, uh, one bedroom units. Right. And so that's, you know, just really think it's good. That's a really great example of, of those choices that we make. And when we, um, value, you know, vehicle storage over our neighbors and our friends, uh, and our coworkers, right? Like those are the choices that we have to make. And that's just, just right there on paper. So, uh, yeah, great, great reference, Jonathan. Thank you. Yeah. So everybody, please check that out. And we'll include a couple links to some things that we're going to be referencing, you know, in this conversation that some things that Scott shared with me. So, yeah, that's an important one. And really, for those of us who aren't thinking about this issue every single day in the way you are, it really does this kind of strong chiropractic adjustment, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. When, when you realize, oh, that's the actual cost of a garage or a parking space and how that it, like really fundamentally impacts this question of affordable housing. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. And then, you know, like, you know, put, put that on like the, the tiny home conversation, right? People are like, oh, tiny homes are a solution. But, are, are, you know, are they like these little tiny 300 square foot, sh- you know, shacks next to 400 square feet of surface parking lot? <laughs> right. Like what, what's the win there? Right. Like uh, versus, you know, just getting over our fear of uh, a density and uh, building higher quality density housing. Uh, to give a higher quality of life at a, at a better price point. Well, since we've had such a lighthearted conversation <laughs> so far, <Yes. laughs> might as well keep it going. Uh, yeah. We just talked about climate change. I think we should probably come back to the topic of mega fires. Yes. And thinking about that reality, that increasing reality in a number of places and The first thing I want to do, and again, we should have multiple conversations specifically dedicated to this topic, but this is just, you know, as like, I don't know, a somewhat normal person, I run a review publication or something, whatever it is we call Blister. I mean, this has been one of the incredibly frustrating things to me, watching, we will stick with your terms, we won't call them wildfires, we'll call them megafires, where... I'm sitting around thinking, really? Like, we can't figure out the best practice here and then just all get on the same page with how best to go forward to mitigate what we're seeing, right? And so this is one of the things that I think is interesting about what you're doing with your company Fabric, which you talked about at the top of this conversation. But I'm, you know, we have heard this stuff about there's too much fuel, 
on the ground? Can we put this to use? And in fact, this seems like a win. Take that, use it to create sustainable housing materials that would then go toward developing more affordable housing in these communities we're talking about. So I'd love to hear you say more about how you're handling this and what might actually be kind of a some good news here and a you know in where we've talked about quite a bit of bad news but talk a bit more about the prospects here so yeah so you know the the mega fire thing and climate change they're they're one and they're one and the same you know there are definitely forest management mistakes that have been made in the western us uh specifically around fire suppression policy over the last 100 years right where we we basically put out every fire as they started um which uh, interrupted the natural fire cycle that was a part of the landscape in, in the Western Americas. And we did that to protect, you know, logging interests and mining interests and, and later development in the mountain, uh, you know, West. And what that did was that, that, that caused an explosion of trees that normally would not have been there that would have been burned out in those low intensity natural wildfires. And it, it allowed them to, to sprout up like weeds. And so, you know, they've, they've kind of choked our forests and uh, compete with uh, scarce water in a region of the world that is known for drought cycles. Right. And so you've got healthy big trees competing with uh, little trees, trees for the same amount of water and it's causing those big trees to die at a, at a much faster rate than they normally would and make them more susceptible to infestations like pine beetle uh, infestations for example which then kills them all off and those dead standing trees in the forest uh, create more fuels for the wildfires um uh, but you know again you know, the climate relation here, you know, yes, there are some forest management practices that have led to this and kind of driven what we're seeing today in, in you know, uh, Montana and California and Idaho and Washington and Colorado, you know, Arizona, right? The whole West is burning. Uh, but this is not just a U.S. issue. This is happening in British Columbia. This is happening in Siberia. I mean, the fires in Siberia for the last several years are dwarf anything that we're seeing in the United States. Like you think the fires in California are bad. Uh, the fires in Russian Siberia, uh, Northeastern Siberia are on a scale. That's just really hard to wrap your head around. Uh, East fires in Eastern Europe this year, fires in Finland and Southern Europe in particular, Greece and Italy, um, Turkey are, are just really unprecedented. And so this is a global issue, uh, which directly points back to, global climate change, right? Global warming. And so we can't really talk about megafires and solutions for megafires without talking about climate change. So that just kind of like, again, supports the urgent need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions through cars and through more efficient buildings and uh, multifamily housing, just to put a kind of a, a pin on it, is um, inherently much more uh, energy efficient than Single family homes. Single family homes are, are terrible when it comes to energy efficiency, um, and those you know those shared walls and shared roofs of a of a multifamily structure uh, really provide a, a much more uh, efficient enclosure. Um, and so that's another rationale for making that a a, a much more or bringing that back to a much more common typology of of housing uh, in America. So back to the wildfire situation. What you know what what are we doing here? So 
this situation is big, right? We've let this uh, get out of really out of hand, and uh, we're really talking about a true trillion dollar problem, right? To get into our forests and do what needs to be done to uh, get in front of the mega fires is a trillion plus dollar challenge. Um, and, and it's not just a money issue. It's a, it's a labor and personnel issue. Who's going to go do the work across millions of acres of Western landscape. Um, and so we're, we're left with this choice of, you know, we can let the material burn in the forests or we can, you know, institute a Marshall plan to try to get it out of the forests. Well, if we get it out of the forest, what do we do with it? You know, um, that's another big question mark. And so that's, uh, again, kind of going back to the mission of uh, my, our company, Fabric, is to figure out places to put this wood where it has the highest value uh, and also where the carbon that's trapped in that fiber is stored over uh, the long term. And, you know, that's why we are really focused on this advanced uh, prefabricated technologies just because it makes a much higher quality building with a much longer lifespan where we can trap that carbon for not like 30 or 50 years, like a modern apartment building, you know, stick frame site built apartment building have really short, they're, they're built pretty cheaply. Uh, and so they have very short lifespans. We're talking making buildings that last 100, 200 years uh, and, and trapping that carbon and, and giving us that, that runway to address other climate uh, solutions. Um, and so I know this kind of flies in the face of a, of a lot of environmental sensibilities that have kind of been built up, right? Like we've been told for so long, like, don't cut down the trees. The forests are good. The trees are good. Uh, and you know, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to cut down trees. I love for, I love being in the forest, right? It's my home. Uh, but we have to restore them to their natural state of being. Uh, and, you know, that, that, like I said, that only happens through, through thinning, uh, these big thinning programs, you know, the path is there to do it. This is not, this is not crazy, you know, blue sky, you know, moonshot technologies. This is all stuff that's been implemented in, in Europe, uh, for decades now, and they're getting better and better at, at doing it. Um, you can watch, uh, jump on YouTube and, and search for cross laminated timber installation. And you can see, uh, what we, you know, we talked about these like formula one pit crew type installation teams. And it's like five people and a crane operator and they're picking up these big giant plates and they're throwing up a, a you know, a five, six story building in, in a few weeks, you know, it's, it's amazing uh, how fast it goes up. So if we need to build housing and build housing now, here's a great mechanism to do it. Um, if we need to build a lot of sustainable housing, this is a great way to do it. And we have, references uh to get there right and and not only uh europe but also uh japan in particular and increasingly australia as well as they um develop their own uh mass timber and prefab industries so this is what you all are up to at fabric and sticking with the theme of urgency i mean this all sounds really good how quickly can more of this type of development happen? Is Does that get us back to the conversation about codes and zoning regulation stuff? Do changes need to be implemented in pretty much any community you're talking about if we're going to have more of this type of housing built? 
Yes. Uh, yeah. Great question. And yeah, it does. Um, you know, the good thing is that um, because the the industry around mass timber and prefab construction is getting more mature and more resources behind it, they um, have been able to get updates to the uh, IBC, the International Building Code, uh, which is what the U.S. adheres to. Uh, it's not very international. It's really just a, a language thing. It's really our our building code, and and we're we're all, you know we're we've made um, big strides in in updating the building code to uh, uh, allow more mass timber construction, uh, and and in bigger buildings, right? Like actual you know high rise buildings, you know 18, 18 stories and up of solid wood buildings. It's really truly amazing technology. The codes, yes, the codes, uh, local codes can still provide barriers to this. Uh, Los Angeles is a is a you know uh, is a key example uh, of a of a uh, a city that has put up artificial barriers. Uh, you could say the that you could see the 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 hand of the concrete industry uh, in that one. But where c- local codes can be really beneficial here uh, is incentivizing this type of construction, actually becoming a a mechanism for change rather than a barrier uh, to change. And, you know, so much of what, as a company and, and my own personal beliefs, what we're really talking about here is a return to traditional style development and building, right? Um, the car entered our society and really changed fundamentally. You know, that's, you know, I've had, I've had a guy yell at me at a meeting, like, you just want to, you know, put your social engineering on our community. And really what we're talking about is the, you know, car style development and this modern type of construction. That's the social engineering. For human history, we built in compact communities out of local materials, right? And um, we really need to kind of return to that if we're going to survive as a society and, and in a, a, you know, a, a healthy and vibrant planet. Um, and so those building codes can incentivize local uh, wood, wood utilization in their codes, Public buildings, for example, uh, are a great place to do this. Your new library, your new school, your new fire department in the RFP to the builders or the developers must include X amount of percent of local wood from fire-treated landscapes. Boom. There you go. You've created a market. You want to win this big $50 million library project? Well, now you're going to help clear you know, 700 acres of land uh, and, and treat and restore it back to its natural state. Right. Um, and so that's the power that we see in where codes can be really beneficial and where they should be deployed to incentivize change to a more sustainable future. Well, Scott, you've definitely given us a whole lot to think about. And I, I, I hope that a lot of people listening to this find themselves very much in my own situation. Like I've just learned a lot. And so I appreciate that. I admit I find myself currently sort of exhausted, but also excited uh, from this conversation about potential concrete steps forward. Like, I think that's really important, right? When we're coming up and talking about massive problems and issues, I, again, I just, it's, I don't have the temperament to just cry about all of it and kind of hand ring. Like, I want to know can we get to sort of best practices and and start to like it's pretty much wasted energy i think just crying about the current situation let's put that into like here's how we can take meaningful steps forward right and i think in this conversation we've talked a lot about 
you know, some very specific things from like, let's reconsider how much space we want to put toward parking spots anywhere, and in particular in mountain communities. We've also talked about maybe there needs to be a reevaluation of values, right, when it comes to our own individual thinking about retirement savings, right? And what some selfishly motivated, understandable motivations, but nevertheless selfish. Like maybe we need to have a reconsideration of those given some of the other values we claim to hold, right? So yeah, we've gone from literally talking about concrete parking spaces to like some really, really close to home values and value considerations for us. So um, yeah, man, that was a lot. I know. I uh, This is, you know, so kind of infected my like, you know, this has just consumed my life. And, and like I said, like, you know, I've kind of like been pulled out of the matrix and this is all I kind of see now. And so it's, yeah. it, 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 it's, you know, from a personal note, it's, it's, it's heavy to carry all this around and it's hard to, to, to be, you know, get up every day and to work, to try to, to build, you know, housing for my neighbors and my friends in these communities and, and see all these roadblocks and all these barriers. Like you said, you're not the kind of person to like sit in the corner and cry about it. Like, uh, 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 you know, something has to change. And, and furthermore, I mean, again, coming back to if we take the common ground of like, we love skiing and we love clean air and we love it when we can look outside and we see more than just smoke. I mean, these are like real things. And so, I mean, I think, again, as is often the case in life, perspective is really significant. And, you know, what we're talking about is... If we want to keep participating in one of my favorite things in the world, which is skiing down snow-covered mountains, if we want to have air quality that isn't choking us out, I mean, well, cool. Then let's let's fight for that. Let's take concrete steps to make those things happen. You know, and what we're talking about here, really, in the in the then scheme of things, it's not that big a deal. There's more important stuff that I think we're probably all actually more passionate about. And so let's let's keep kind of the focus on that. And if these end up building better, more sustainable, richer, richer in the fullest sense of that word, richer communities, then that's something we'll all be really proud of. And I think would be able to look back on and say, we did make some adjustments and we put our communities on a better path. And I don't know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, I think that's something we'd all take a lot of pride in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think there's a lot lot in that, Jonathan, um, that all of these challenges are challenges that we've created for ourselves. Uh, the housing one in particular is they're challenges that exist on paper. And because they exist on paper, we can change them tomorrow. And that gives me a lot of hope and it, and it allows me to see a better future. Don't, I don't have to squint too hard to visualize that lush and abundant and vibrant future for a, a lot of people, right? Scott, I really appreciate it. Again, I, I've learned a lot from you. I appreciate what you're up to. I hope you and Fabric have much success. And I still really hope that we do have community 
leaders listening to these conversations. And then I hope we have community members listening to these conversations. And I, I, mean, I know the feedback from our first two episodes in this little mini series, we're getting a ton of feedback. And, and I'm really happy about this. It's a lot of people saying, thank you. Thank you for covering this topic. And, you know, I think in this conversation, you're probably at different points going to have some people like cheering loud for what you're saying. And there's going to be some other points where you probably pissed off some people. Uh, yes. Right. And it's like, <laughs> Hey, you know what? It It is what it is. But ultimately this is just like, we all need to process this stuff and figure out how to go forward in meaningful ways, the most meaningful ways in our respective communities. And um, at the end of the day, I, I, I hope people are in a better position to do that now. And I, I think they are. So thank you so much for, um, for taking the time and, and sharing your perspective with us. Yeah, likewise, Jonathan. Um, you know, I really appreciate what you do overall at Blister, and this series, you know, hits very close to home, and I think it's a really important message to uh, to get out there uh, to this community in particular that you know sh shares, like you said, that shared passion for the outdoors, for skiing, you know, for being in nature, and and let's let's rally around that and decide that that's what's important to us, and we can then kind of work backwards from from there and, and create the future that we all want to see together. Appreciate it, Scott. I'll talk to you soon. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Scott for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening and for taking action on the issues we discussed today. From all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again this week over on our other podcast feeds. That would be Off the Couch, Bikes and Big Ideas, and Gear 30. Take care, everybody.